Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jess, and these conversations just keep getting better and better. I've had the honor of talking to so many outstanding historians for this podcast, and I'm so grateful to each and every one of them for being our guest. Following on from last week's episode with Dr. Jake Newsom, we are going to stay in the 20th century just a little bit longer by looking at the rise of drag in Australia and the United States through the extraordinary life of artist, filmmaker, and drag icon Doris Fish. This is the most recent history we've covered so far, but I have to remind myself that the 70s were 50 years ago already, and if that doesn't make you feel old, I don't know what will. But in any case, drag is all over the news, with people blaming drag performances for everything from indoctrinating children to destroying democracy. I mean, Jesus Christ, what decade is it? It's hard to tell sometimes, but there's no time like the present to talk about the history of drag so we all have a little bit of context for what's going on. Drag isn't new, and attacks against it aren't either. My guest today is Craig Seligman, author of Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. Isn't that the best title? Everybody go home. It doesn't get better than that. Not only does the book have the best title, but it is so beautifully written, and the ending made me burst into tears. Needless to say, I was so excited to talk to Craig about Doris, the history of drag, and about the experience of living in San Francisco during the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s. Now, I know what you're thinking. I promised you a lighter episode this week, and AIDS is about as dark as it gets. But look, I promise this episode is fun. It's a lot of fun. We're talking about drag shows, drugs, sex work, punk rock, and Vegas in space. And it doesn't get much better than that. But before we jump into it, a word on the pronouns. I'll let Craig explain it himself. When I knew Doris, everybody called Doris she, but everybody called everybody she. Gay men called other gay men she. And there was not the um, the gravity on pronouns that, uh, that we have today. Uh, I knew gay men who called straight men she. Um, now, when you use a pronoun, uh, you have to be much more careful about the pronoun the person prefers. But we didn't think all that much about pronouns in those years. And it was a real question for me when I began writing whether I was going to call Doris he or she, as so many of us did. But I learned that his family and many of his Australian friends always called him he. And since he was um, clearly a, um, a cis male and male identified, it seemed like he was a better pronoun for him. But you'll find uh, as you read the book that a lot of people who talk about him use the pronoun she. Okay, so Doris's pronouns could be pretty fluid, but he identified as male. And for most of this episode, he's referred to as he or him. Got it? Good. Let's get started. All right, everybody. My guest today is Craig Seligman, author of the new book, Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag. How's that for an amazing title? Craig, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, we are so glad to have you. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this book. Now, we've talked a little bit about the history of cross-dressing on the show, and I do want to provide a little bit of historical context for people. So sure. cross-dressing has been used in entertainment for centuries, but drag as we know it seems to have originated in America with William Dorsey Swan being the first known drag queen in 19th century Washington, D.C., but drag has been popular in both Sydney and San Francisco since at least the early 20th century, possibly even before. What can you tell us about the history of drag? Uh, I can tell you that in Sydney, drag has uh, a long history, as you said, going back to the early 20th century. There were drag balls or costume balls, I guess they called them, in the early 20th century, uh, in which a lot of bohemian types uh, dressed up. Uh, in drag, and those were very policed balls. They, um, uh, the men were required to have male underwear on under their drag. Uh, I don't know exactly how that was checked, but I know that it was. 
And they were required to be off the streets in drag uh, within one hour after the balls ended or they were subject to arrest. Uh, by the 1960s, uh, this phenomenon had become such a thing that Sydney was really, by that time, and still remains, I think, the drag capital of the world. That's incredible. And then San Francisco has a long history with it as well. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Uh, it certainly goes back to the age of prohibition and the founding of, well, the first drag queens I know about in San Francisco were actually prostitutes who worked in some of the uh, gay bars in uh, San Francisco's Gold Coast around the turn of the century. But by the 20s or 30s, Finocchio's had been founded, and Finocchio's remained a very famous drag club in San Francisco up into, I believe, the 90s. By the time I lived in there in the 80s, it had really become a drag club for straight tourists. But when it was founded in the 30s. It was a very louche place. And the drag queens there, uh, many of the drag queens there, like the drag queens in those early San Francisco Gold Coast bars, were doubled as prostitutes. Right, right. Now, this book, of course, focuses on the life of Doris Fish, and it is such a fantastic biography, but I suppose we always have to start at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about Doris's early life. What was it like growing up in Australia in the 60s? Um, Doris and I are just about contemporaries. Doris was born in 1952. I was born a year later in 1953. Um, and I think we had very similar childhoods, except that Doris grew up in a city, Sydney, and I grew up in a town in Louisiana. But the countries uh, at that time were very similar. They were kind of gray, dull, conformist places highly anti-communist. And Doris experienced as a teenager kind of what I experienced, which was the flowering of hippie culture and the sudden change in, uh, or at least the public change in sexual mores in, in those years. So I don't think Doris's childhood was uh, all that different from the childhood of a lot of Americans. Doris uh, was the third child in a Catholic family of six. He had two older sisters, two younger brothers, and then one, uh, the last child was a sister. Right. Uh, I really enjoyed your descriptions of their family life. You know, you really paint a picture with Mildred being um, <laughs> particularly familiar to a lot of people. I think she kind of reminded me of my grandmother. Yeah, she was a mother with six kids, and she was a busy, exhausted woman. But she was also, as all her kids remember her, a really great mom. And when Doris became a drag queen on the scene, Mildred was always there, always at, uh, at the shows on some of the floats in the Mardi Gras parade, and prided herself on being as well-known a figure in the gay community in Sydney as Doris was. That's so wonderful. It's, it's great to hear these stories of people with supportive parents. Yeah, um, I think there are more of those than people really know about, because, of course, the stories that um, came out during the 70s and especially the 80s during the age of AIDS was, of course, terrible stories of people who were re rejected by their families. But I think there were many more people like Doris and me who were fully supported by their families. That's so wonderful to hear. I think that's just brilliant. So you mentioned, and I thought this was such a fun story. So Doris's first uh, sort of unofficial drag performance was actually in a Catholic school play at the age of 12. But of course, uh, Doris Fish as a character, as, as we know her, really started with Sylvia and the Synthetics in 1972. So right. their performances were pretty wild and tickets came with the Australian equivalent of Quaaludes. So <laughs> what were their shows like? And, uh, and how were they the forerunners of, of punk? Uh, it was such a nutty era, both here and there. Uh, Sylvia and the Synthetics were a group of people, gay and straight men and women, who very much like San Francisco's Coquettes, got together and decided to put on a bunch of really wild shows. Some of them were talented, many of them were not. It didn't really matter because they were on drugs and so was everybody in the audience. Um, <laughs> those were crazy years that are kind of hard for us to uh, imagine right now. But everybody was having a great time and everybody was having a wild time. Uh, the sudden sexual freedom of those years was, uh, was, I think, a bit overwhelming for everybody in the audience and they were doing everything they could to practice it. Um, so 
Sylvia and the Synthetics, the name of the group, um, were people who often wound up on stage with their clothes off. And my impression is that a lot of the people in the audience wound up with their clothes off as well. Well, it must have been a fun night out. Uh, I, I saw that review that someone wrote, the noise is tremendous and there's no escape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very much like early rock. And yeah, for me, they really are forerunners of punk in the sense that underneath all the fun and the craziness, there was a real sense of anger, not at the audience, but at the society around them, though the anger was taken out at the audience uh, in ways like throwing things at the audience. There was a uh, a uh, number in which they would throw dead fish at the audience, another uh, number in which they might throw suds at the audience. And there were people who were really um, uh, progenitors of punk, uh, pulling their hair back, uh, painting their faces in uh, wild ways and wearing swastikas as barrettes. Yeah, that, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, that punk would do now. But of course, with uh, like Malcolm McLaren and sex and everything, you know, in London, they, they did actually used to use, you know, kind of swastikas as imagery. Absolutely. Uh, they had no real political significance uh, during those years, except to say we are not members of this society that we despise. Mm, right. And of course, um, appearing in drag would be uh, an act of aggression in itself, right? You write that it was an act of public aggression just because it was it was so kind of frowned upon. It was absolutely an act of aggression. It's hard for us to remember now how beyond the pale drag queens once were, but uh, certainly in the 60s, drag queens were people who might appear in a few clubs in a few cities that you really had to know about. You certainly didn't see them on TV unless you were talking about people like Milton Berle who were dressing up in women's clothes as a big hoot for the audience. But serious drag queens were, uh, were completely unknown to the public. And if gay people horrified the public, which they did, drag queens horrified the public that much more. And people didn't know how to react. So you mentioned the concept of gender fuck with the coquettes in San Francisco. Uh, John Waters, of course, being a big fan. So yeah. this isn't a term that a lot of people are aware of, right? So what is gender fuck? And can anybody do it? Uh, I think anybody can do it. Um, it was called gender fuck. It was also called uh, more politely gender bending. And I think um, you could honestly apply that term to people like uh, David Bowie and even Mick Jagger, people who were known in those years as androgynous. But groups like the Coquettes and Sylvia and the Synthetics did it much more I hate to use the word seriously because they were utterly unserious people. But what it meant was uh, guys putting on dresses uh, without shaving their chests or their legs, uh, throwing on crazy wigs, but in no way attempting to be serious drag queens and in no way attempting to convince people that they were um, not the cis men or cis women that they were born. Uh, instead, they were saying, I can wear whatever I want to wear. Uh, society has no way to impose its rules on me. Mm, right. I, I love the descriptions of the uh, beards full of glitter and, and leaving trails of glitter wherever they went. I just think that sounds so lovely. Yeah, well, glitter was especially a trademark of the uh, coquettes in San Francisco. I think Sylvia and the synthetics were a little less sophisticated on those lines. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like it. So Doris started living in San Francisco more or less full time from about 1975. Uh, now at the time, many considered San Francisco to be the gay capital of the world. So what was it like around this time? Uh, I think it was, uh, in fact, I know it was because I was uh, there in those years. Uh, it was a paradise for gay men. Sydney in those years, although today it's one of the world's great cities and a place that I would happily live, considered by its inhabitants, especially its hip young inhabitants, a backwater. And they wanted to get out. Mainly they wanted to get out either to London or to New York. But there was also, of course, San Francisco, which had the cachet not only of being the gay capital, capital of the world, but of also um, the, the hippie capital of the world. Uh, we were just uh, a few years past the summer of love. Uh, Doris worshipped Grace Slick and the Jeff Jefferson Airplane. 
And those were big attractions for him. So San Francisco was a natural place for him to um, try out first before he moved on to New York. Uh, but he never did move on to New York because he fell so in love with San Francisco. And San Francisco fell so in love with him that he remained there for the rest of his life. So he continued to go back to Sydney almost at least once a year. Yeah, it really seems like he was in exactly the right place. And of course, uh, with that kind of hippie culture, right, it works as well with Doris's personality. You mentioned he was really into health, food. He was really interested in Buddhism, reincarnation, all these different kinds of concepts that, that must have been, you know, kind of more prevalent in San Francisco around this time. Absolutely. Doris was always kind of a new age person, which made him different from his friends who were much punkier. But Doris... Um, believed in vegetarianism. Doris did yoga uh, before yoga was widely popular. Uh, Doris fasted a lot. Doris was really a very healthy person who followed the hippie tenets of health. Uh, Doris did a lot of pot in his uh, younger years, as did we all. But as he got older, um, he became much less interested in quaaludes and pot and was never into cocaine or uh, psychedelic drugs because Doris was, um, unlike the stereotyped ditzy drag queen, a person who really always wanted to be in control, both on the stage and off. Mm, yeah, I can absolutely relate to that. Um, but it sounds like not everybody was. Uh, there are constant mentions of drugs throughout the book, and it's just so hard to get your, your head around. It seems like they were really everywhere. Drugs were everywhere in the 70s. And I have to say, it was great. Um, <laughs> It, you know, it um, it took a bad turn. It took a bad turn in the Haight-Ashbury and elsewhere. And there were a lot of people who couldn't handle their drugs. But um, many people who were my age, who were in college in the late 60s and early 70s, would say that uh, drugs had a really positive effect on their lives in uh, opening their minds and uh, and also in just making us have a lot of fun. And these parties, I mean, they do sound like a lot of fun. They were wild. <laughs> Absolutely. So for a lot of his adult life, Doris was a sex worker. It wasn't related to the drag. It's very important that those things were separate, but it was what he did to make a living. And it was less traumatic and demeaning than a lot of the other jobs that he had or could have had. So it seemed to be his calling and he treated it like social work. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Doris approached sex work? Yeah, I talk about it a lot in the book, and it's always been um, a factor of Doris's life that really interests me. People always talk about prostitutes as people who are exploited, and I always wonder, how are they more exploited than people who work in chicken processing plants and uh, meat plants? Uh, Doris was a sex worker. Uh, he sort of fell into that work accidentally. He went home with a guy who had a massage table and he said, what's that for? And the next day he was working as a prostitute and he immediately discovered that he loved the work. He told me later, I know you're not supposed to like your job, but I really liked my job. Doris had a very big libido and sex work satisfied it. And of course, unlike uh, with a lot of female sex workers, Doris didn't have a pimp. Doris was his own manager. Doris chose the kind of work he wanted to do, and he got a kick out of it. And he also was proud of it. He felt that, um, uh, as you said, he was a social worker. A lot of his clients were ostensibly straight guys who came to town for the weekend and were looking for a guy to uh, have fun with. Uh, a lot of his clients were people who... Um, might have difficulty finding partners. Uh, he mentioned amputees. He mentioned people with colostomy bags. And uh, he said a lot of guys were surprised that he was so versatile, that he was really kind of willing to do anything that they wanted to do. I think Doris, um, Doris's real pleasure in sex was giving pleasure. And I should add that Doris was always completely open about being a sex worker, including with his family. There are letters home about, I've been hooking again and I made $100 from a guy this week. Uh, Doris never kept anything about his life, uh, his drag or his sex work uh, a, a secret. The other thing I should add about his sex work is that Doris was above all an artist. 
And artists always have to find a way of working that doesn't completely deplete their artistic life. And sex work really worked for Doris as a way of satisfying his libido, not getting involved, too involved with a lover who would keep him from doing his art and uh, having a good time and giving him time for his art. And that's so important. I think it's difficult for any artist or any kind of creative to find something that works like that. I think you know, any of us, especially writers, we've all kind of had a day job that by the end of it, you're just too exhausted. Exactly. I, um, I've um, i gotten up early so many mornings when I didn't want to to write because then I had to go off to a job. And I, uh, I wanted to write when I was fresh, not when I was exhausted from working. My impression of Doris is that he must have been fairly exhausted from working, uh, given uh, what a good sex worker he was, but that didn't keep him from doing good art. Yeah. And, and he did some really great art. So things really started to take off for him kind of in the late 70s when he met some important people that he would continue to perform with for the rest of his life, like Tippy and Miss X, right? So tell us about the Sluts A Go-Go. Doris was in a show with uh, a few people that was called Sluts A Go-Go, and then they made Sluts A Go-Go the name of their troupe. And it had various members at various times. But uh, two of the most important were a queen named Tippy and another queen named Miss X. Uh, and they're an interesting threesome because they fall at very different places on the sexual spectrum. Tippy was a small, fragile, a bullion little thing whom we would now easily recognize as a trans person. Uh, I've never known anyone to use uh, the pronoun a pronoun other than she with Tippy. She's simply the most feminine person any of us ever met. Uh, Miss X, on the other hand, identified as a gay man. He now lives in Phoenix with his wife, and they're the parents of three grown children. Um, so Miss X was clearly a bisexual man, as he said to me, uh, you know, why not sleep with men and women? You can have twice the fun. They drink an awful lot of coffee in Brazil. And Doris fell in between the two of them. There was absolutely nothing trans about Doris. Doris could uh, do very convincing drag, con could make himself look like a woman, although, as he said, he never really wanted to look completely like a woman because then people wouldn't notice him and he wouldn't get the attention he wanted. But Doris, as a sex worker, was a uh, was a gay man with a great body. He went to the gym. He said so he could have great cleavage when he wore a push-up bra. But it was also uh, because he had a beautiful body and he wanted to nurture it. Um, and and he didn't like the idea at all of having sex and drag. In fact, when a guy would start to caress his um, his breasts when he was in uh, drag, he would say, oh, would you like to caress my brother's socks? <laughs> so around this time, he started getting some different kind of work, too. He started modeling for greeting cards. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, during the uh, 80s, there was a company called West Graphics that was founded in San Francisco. It was founded by a guy named Randy West, who started the company doing his own uh, gay erotic art, but he quickly found that he couldn't do art and do and have a business at the same time. So he started looking for models. And through various channels, he came upon the Sluts Agogo, and Doris became his star model. And West Graphics really took off during the 80s. For people who um, remember those years, they must have gotten uh, birthday cards, anniversary cards, all kinds of cards with crazy pictures of Doris in various guises on them. Uh, and it was a real indication that gay humor was becoming much more accepted by the mainstream public. For sure. How did we get there? You, you know, we go from at the beginning of this, we're talking about how drag queens are really kind of shunned and feared to around this time, all of a sudden they're on greeting cards. And that's about as mainstream as you can get. Uh, it's true. Although, in fact, not everybody who bought those cards were absolutely certain that they that that was a drag queen on the cards. Um, some of them uh, just thought they were crazy women. But that was one of my real questions in the book. How did we go from a time when homosexuality was such a shameful, hidden thing to a time like now when it's simply uh, accepted as uh as a usual part of life. I'm trying to avoid the word normal. 
And I think uh, a lot of that had to do with, not just with my generation, but with our parents' generation, who grew up in a very repressive atmosphere and wanted their children to have positive feelings about sex. Uh, I'm sure Doris's uh, parents never told him, uh, it's fine if you grow up gay. My parents certainly never told me uh, anything like that either. But when we told them we were gay, we were met with complete, basically nonchalance, worry, if anything, that we might uh, be subject to violence or loneliness, but no concern uh, that we were committing a sin. That was, I think, the first step. Then, of course, Stonewall uh, brought everything into the open. Suddenly, there were a lot of protests. And those two uh, brought gayness into public consciousness. People were now reading about, uh, about gay people demanding their rights. And then when the whole Anita Bryant-led backlash began, that in its funny way uh, had its own silver lining. When there were more and more stories about gay people, uh, even if they were stories about the terrible ways gay people were going to recruit your children in the newspapers, uh, they informed other gay people that there were many people out there like them. And so gayness just became a more and more talked about and accepted part of Australian and American and European life. And eventually we got to where we are now. It's absolutely incredible. Gosh, there's so much to unpack there. We've talked a little bit about uh, Stonewall, uh, especially in our interview with Hugh Ryan that we had a couple months back. And we talked about how that affected New York, because, of course, you know, he's primarily a historian of New York. Um, but how did that affect San Francisco? You know, were the ripples felt everywhere? The ripples were absolutely felt everywhere. Like 9-11, uh, Stonewall was not a New York event. It was a national and even international event. And although San Francisco already had a strong political community, uh, gay political community forming, Diane Feinstein was one of the first politicians to realize that there was a gay vote and that she could take advantage of it. Uh, Stonewall caused people to come out of, into the streets and begin protesting and demanding their rights a lot more openly. And I think up through the 70s, the political histories, the political gay histories of New York and San Francisco are kind of parallel. I think they diverge a lot in the 80s uh, with the advent of AIDS. But up to that point, I think Stonewall uh, had a unifying factor among gay men and lesbians and was pretty similar everywhere. So around this time, you know, despite the progress that happened after Stonewall, drag performers were still experiencing pushback. And a lot of that, or some of it, I should say, actually came from within the gay community. So, a huge amount of it. Yeah. So what was the political atmosphere like at this time and, and how did Doris respond to it? It was unfortunate, but I think it's completely understandable. When suddenly gay protests were on the TV news, who would the cameras focus on? They would focus on drag queens, and occasionally they would focus on uh, women who had bared their breasts. Uh, they wanted good TV. And a lot of people in the gay community felt that that was a terrible thing. They didn't want us to be represented by drag queens. They were out to convince people that gay people were just like they were. Uh, we're your sons and daughters and cousins and colleagues and friends, and we're no different from you. Drag queens, of course, didn't want to look like everybody else. They didn't want to be like everybody else. They wanted to be themselves and they wanted to be eccentric. And that created some real political problems for them and a lot of controversy within the gay community. Someone wrote a letter to, um, when Doris was uh, doing a stint on uh, the gay cable network, complaining that having Doris read the TV uh, news, having Doris read the gay news was having Aunt Jemima read the black news. Uh, and that, of course, infuriated Doris, and he responded in the same paper, who are rights for if they're not for everyone? If they're not even for the misfits among us, then what do rights mean? 
And drag really remained controversial, I think, into the 80s when the advent of AIDS changed the place of drag queens in the gay community. Right. And it it seems so ridiculous that we could have these these kind of progressive groups, these people kind of fighting for their rights. But what really holds them back isn't that that people stand out and that they're different, but that they fight each other. Yeah. Although I don't agree with them, I have some sympathy for their point of view because they felt that um, drag queens were um, were a political danger. Mm. And I get it. it. They were a political danger. Um, people who were freaked out by homosexuality were certainly going to be freaked out by drag queens. There were so many terrific quotes in this book. And I mean, I was highlighting left and right. So one of them that jumped out at me, it's a shorter one, but I just loved it. So Dora said, drag queens are more than just women. They're aggressively glamorous. Do you think that that's why so many women felt threatened by them and still do? Not that drag queens mock femininity, which has certainly been said, but because they get to live all the best parts of being a woman without some of the drawbacks? I certainly think that's part of it. I also think that drag queens with their high hair and high heels embody some of the styles of glamour that a lot of women understandably and fairly don't want to feel imprisoned by and shouldn't feel imprisoned by. I don't want to speak for women, but my impression is that there are women who feel that drag queens are perpetrating a stereotype of glamour that they don't want to be entrapped by. And I can certainly understand that. As uh, one of uh, Doris's uh, colleagues, the wonderful name Jacqueline Hyde put it, they were saying, don't dress like women. Uh, Don't dress like us. And she said, we weren't dressing like them. They were in jeans and t-shirts. Yeah, it's it's totally different. I mean, as you say, you kind of see it, but it's it's not like we need to be fighting each other. I, I think that some people might be put off, I guess, just by the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of drag queens, they they do kind of embrace these things, you know, that that, you know, some of us want to push back against. But because they put so much time and thought and care into it, you know, a lot of them are, are better at performing femininity than will ever be. So you can see why. You know, I guess some women might be a little self-conscious about it, I suppose. I think, though, that term performing femininity is so perfect uh, for what drag queens do because it is a performance. And it's not a performance that all women have to uh, partake in, just as all men don't have to partake in the idea of performing masculinity. And in fact, uh, my husband, who figures uh, in the book because he performed with Doris, uh, Silvana Nova, was part of a different group of drag queens. They were political drag queens who uh, dressed up as women because they wanted to show their solidarity with women. They didn't want to perform femininity so much as to de-perform masculinity. Yeah. And uh, if you'll excuse the phrase, it doesn't get more punk rock than that. I just think that's brilliant. (laughs) That's wonderful. So how did you and Silvana meet? Uh, We met when we were both working at Mother Jones magazine, a leftist political magazine in San Francisco in the 1980s. And that's just about the time that Doris had started performing with Silvana. So that's when I started going to a lot of drag shows and seeing them both perform together. And that's how you met. So that must have been such an incredible world to be a part of. It was wild. I hadn't known any drag queens before then. Uh, To me, they were uh, like they were to a lot of other people. Uh, Weirdos on the periphery of society. I certainly didn't know Divine and that crowd uh, or uh, the other John Waters stars. So when I got to know them and got to see how um, what terrific people they were and uh, what smart people they were and how uh, unditzy many of them were. I certainly can't say that for all of them. <laughs> uh, it changed uh, it changed my own views. Of course. And, and I think that the more that people do, you know, meet these people, the more that that would happen. You know, I mean, I've always been kind of involved in that world, not to the same extent, but, you know, I kind of grew up around this stuff and watching these movies and, and going to drag shows. And I don't know, I just felt like it was very healthy. That's so wonderful for me to hear because (laughs) the idea of growing up in a world where you see drag queens in movies and can go to drag 
chose is so different from the world I grew up in, in which uh, not only drag was utterly invisible, but so was any kind of same-sex love. Mm, yeah, and things change, and and hopefully for the better. Even though we are, you know, of course, facing some backlash now, which we'll get to. Um, but I want to, of course, talk about the movies. Now, you know what I'm going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> so some of these shows, of course, have become cult classics. And among them, Vegas in Space. Oh, my goodness. Now, I, I've just seen this. I rented it last night. It was amazing. Uh, it was like a Queen Adrena video. It was incredible. Uh, so how how did Vegas in Space come about? What were they trying to do with it? And what were some of the obstacles that they faced during production? It's so wonderful to hear Vegas in Space referred to as a cult classic, which I think it truly has become. Vegas in Space had a funny genesis. It started with a party. Doris took $1,000 of his earnings as a hooker and came to New York and went down to Canal Street and bought $1,000 worth of fun fur and mylar. <laughs> went home, uh, put it up all over his house that he shared with uh, several uh, housemates on Oak Street in San Francisco, and they threw a party that they called Vegas in Space. Uh, in addition to all the fun fur, Doris had a lot of chemical paints uh, that were fluorescent that he combined with makeup. And so they lit the house with black light and made themselves up with this fluorescent makeup and floated around in a kind of eerie phosphorescence. And I think a lot of alcohol was drunk. A lot of drugs were done, but not too much, fortunately, was damaged. And when everyone uh, woke up the next morning and Doris looked around, he said, this is really just too good to tear down. Why don't we make a movie? Doris's idea was that they would get a filmmaker over and shoot for an afternoon and turn it into a 15-minute short and show it somewhere like the Roxy, one of the alternative cinemas in San Francisco. So they did that. They found a young filmmaker at San Francisco State University uh, named Philip R. Ford and talked to him about it. He, of course, being a filmmaker, knew how much more was involved in filming than Doris and his friends did. And they started making this movie. It turned out to be incredibly complicated and a lot of work. But when the rushes came back, they were thrilled by what they saw. It was an outer space drag movie musical set in the 23rd century on an all-female pleasure planet. Uh, gradually, the short became a feature-length film. They drew more and more of the local drag queens, including Silvana, into it. And it took them about three years, two or three years, to film all the scenes. Unfortunately, back then, we didn't have computers. And completing a movie was much more complicated uh, and much more expensive than it is now. So they started having to throw fundraisers so they could afford to get the movie edited, so that they could afford to have a soundtrack, so that they could afford to put in titles and so forth. The whole process wound up taking about nine years. It became the most famous unreleased movie in San Francisco and was not finally released. It was begun in 1983 or four. It was released in 1991, very sadly, just a few months after Doris and Tippy's death. And the film went on to Sundance. It had a very brief uh, period of notoriety. And then I thought it had disappeared, but I happened to go to the 25th anniversary screening in San Francisco in 2016 and discovered that it had become a real cult classic, especially among kids who had seen it in the 80s, and it became a model for them. Uh, it became either a model because it showed a positive image of gay humor or uh, much more so because it, uh, it showed drag queens. And a lot of young boys who had thought in the back of their minds about uh, drag uh, went on to become professional drag queens under the influence of the movie. We just went to see it again in a celebration for Doris uh, at 
Sydney World Pride a few weeks ago. Uh, it was attended by many, many drag queens, some of them older than me, and quite a lot in their teens and 20s, for whom the movie has become a real touchstone. Yeah, so influential. It's so cool. And Doris's art really shows through, too. Of course, after you mentioned it, I spotted it everywhere. You know, you have the eyes everywhere. You know, you have the eyes on the breasts. You have them on the walls. You have them around people's necks. You know, it's really distinctive, isn't it? Yeah, Doris was obsessed with eyes. And I guess something I haven't really talked about enough is Doris as an artist. I mean, there were really three Dorises. There was Doris the prostitute and there was Doris the drag queen. But I think every bit as significant was Doris the artist. Uh, Doris was a painter. Doris was always turning out uh, canvases. Uh, Doris was a great scenery maker. Doris did all the uh, miniatures for Vegas in Space. And most of all, Doris was an artist with the face. She could take anybody's face and completely erase it and put on a new one. Uh, Doris was really a genius in the art of drag. Oh, absolutely. Goodness. And the, the makeup in the film, of course, is, is just so incredible. It's iconic. I love it. So, you know, things were things were going well. You know, Doris is going from strength to strength, getting all these cool projects, you know, all these amazing things happening. But then things really changed when people started becoming aware of HIV in the 80s. And San Francisco was hit particularly hard with the city's AIDS budget exceeding the federal government's in 1985 and 1986. So Doris was aware that he had it by 1986, if not before. What was it like to live through this period in San Francisco? It was, uh, as a friend of mine says, quoting Dickens, the best of times, the worst of times. And it was one of the reasons I really wanted to write this book. I feel that the history of gay liberation and especially the history of AIDS has been told in this country almost exclusively from a New York perspective, meaning it's been largely the history of ACT UP. ACT UP was an incredible organization, and I don't want to denigrate it in any way. It did amazing things for um, not just for gay people, but for people with illness in general. But life in San Francisco in the 80s was completely different from life in New York, which had a closeted mayor who wanted nothing to do with the gay community and a municipal government that was just as irresponsible toward its people suffering with AIDS as the federal government was. In San Francisco, you had a completely different picture. You had a mayor, Diane Feinstein, who completely supported the gay population. She told the head of AIDS at San Francisco General Hospital, you just write a check and put any number you want on it and I will sign it. And San Francisco became really the best place in the world if you can say such a thing, to have AIDS in that you were supported not only by the gay community, not only by the government and the politicians, but by the city at large. It was a place where people really came together. And I don't just mean gay people, a lot of the straight community too, to take care of uh, their gay friends. Uh, and Or I shouldn't say just their gay friends, their sick friends, because there were plenty of people uh, who had AIDS who were not gay. It was really a model of what can happen in a good way in an American community when disaster hits. And in the middle of all this, uh, Doris developed AIDS himself. Uh, Doris was never closeted except about one thing, which was his illness. He didn't say anything about it for a few years. But finally, he came out publicly that he was an AIDS patient, and he became the city's most famous AIDS patient. Like a lot of other drag queens, he did a lot of benefits. Um, drag queens would go to hospital wards and perform for the patients. And it was really at that time, I think, that people's idea of drag queens and their importance began to change. They became like cheerleaders for the gay community at a time when uh, gay men and lesbians really needed cheerleaders. And uh, of course, this work continues and these fundraisers still happen and there's there's World AIDS Day and everything. When I was in, in high school, I used to 
volunteer. I did sex education for Planned Parenthood. And as part of this, you know, we used to do AIDS fundraisers with the local drag queens. You know, we do these walks and things and it was, it was so cool. Um, and I, I feel like now you, you know, I mean, I'm not that old. I mean, I'm almost 40 and that's weird to think about, but you know, this just happened. This was like what, around like 2000. And this was such a, a cool, really positive kind of beautiful thing. And I feel like now people would be up in arms, you know, you, oh, you have high school students marching with drag queens, what's happening? You know, the, the way that things have kind of taken a sudden uh, kind of backward turn, I find very discouraging. Um, I do and I don't, uh, because I'm not surprised by it. I grew up in a world uh, that was uh, replete with homophobia. Then I saw it pushed back a little. I was around in 19... It was it 87, 88, 89, when the Supreme Court passed its decision saying that uh, it was uh, the case was called Bowers versus Georgia, in which they ruled that it was OK for states to make gay sex a felony. Uh, that was later overturned, as we know. But politicians are always going to use homophobia as they're going to use anti-Semitism as a way to uh, rally crowds and bring out their dark side. And we're always going to have to keep fighting against it. I think we're, I know we're in a much better place than we were 50 years ago, but that doesn't mean that those negative notions will ever disappear. And we always have to stay on the ball and make sure that we keep fighting for the good. Yeah. I think that's so important. I do. So we are recording this in March. And just last week, Tennessee became the first state to ban drag shows in public spaces, with 14 other states pushing similar bills across the country. But of course, as we've mentioned a little bit, this isn't the first time that drag has faced that kind of a backlash. Is what's happening now similar to Anita Bryant and Save Our Children in 1977? It is and it isn't. Um, in 1977, it was just about gay men and lesbians. We didn't uh, even talk about trans people then in general. Now it's focusing much more on trans people and on drag, but it's the same thing. And I would find it hilarious if I didn't find it so scary. Uh, what does it mean? Does it mean that performances of As You Like It are going to become illegal? How do you define drag and how do you figure out when it's dangerous to children and when it isn't? These are, of course, ridiculous questions and I don't even like posing them. But we know what's going on with these laws. They're not really about protecting children. They're about getting votes and scaring parents, uh, just as laws uh, about critical race theory were uh, much less about race than about scaring parents and getting votes. Uh, we have to keep our eye on the ball. We have to remember that you can have success if you appeal to people's better angels and not let ourselves get too freaked out by it. One thing I will say is that homosexuality and lesbianism and transism and gayness and drag are all genies that have come out of the bottle and you cannot force them back into the bottle. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you talk a little bit about a photo that appeared in Barry Kay's 1976 book, The Other Women. You describe a picture of Doris and his friends from the synthetics that really puts to bed the idea of confusion as it relates to gender. You write, these are not creatures who are searching for themselves. They very much know who they are and their strength is what holds you. Now, I know exactly what you mean. I thought that was so great. So do you think this freedom and certainty is what people find threatening? They're, they're not following the status quo. I think people are freaked out by anyone who doesn't follow the norm. We live in a country in which, even though we talk about individualism, conformity is celebrated. And drag queens are very much people who don't conform. That's where I believe other people see the real threat. Mm, definitely. Now, another thing that I thought was so interesting, you have in your introduction, you mentioned in 1972's Mother Camp, anthropologist Esther Newton argues that drag, like violence, is as American as apple pie. What is it about drag that is quintessentially American, do you think? I think what's quintessentially American about drag is the way it has always existed under the surface 
trying and waiting to burst out. Um, it's always there somewhere. It's always waiting there somewhere. I grew up in a time where everybody was pretending to be straight, but everybody also knew that that wasn't really true. Uh, and drag queens were the symbol of homosexuality in those years. Um, they put the lie to that ideal of conformity. And I think Esther Newton really hit the nail on the head when she said that. Mm, yeah, definitely. I love that. So you described Doris as a living work of art, a man who wanted to break free of the confines of the identity he'd been assigned because it couldn't contain him. So what is Doris's legacy? Um, I think we see uh, a lot of Doris in the drag queens we see on RuPaul. Uh, on the drag queens we see on stage. Doris was really a leader in the idea that drag queens are not female impersonators. Doris always wanted his drag to appear, to use the term he used, crook. He never wanted to look like a woman. He always wanted to make it at least a little bit apparent to the audience that they were watching a man. Uh, and I think that has remained uh, true in a lot of the ironic drag queens of today. Of course, you do see on RuPaul uh, drag queens, especially younger drag queens, who uh, who can really fool you into thinking that they were born female. Uh, but that was never Doris's intention, and I don't think it's the overall intention of drag, including RuPaul's great drag. Uh, the idea is much more an ironic idea, the idea that you really can be the person you want to be and not the person somebody says you got to be. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so this has been such an amazing conversation and I recommend the book to anybody. So where can we find more about you and your work? Uh, well, you can Google me uh, and the book is available. Uh, it should be available in your local bookstore. If, or if it's not, uh, please ask them to get it. And of course, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and anywhere else on the web. Uh, it's published by Public Affairs and uh, it's out there now. Awesome. Craig Sauerman, thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Craig Seligman for stopping by the show. His new book is Who Does That Bitch Think She Is? Doris Fish and the Rise of Drag, and it's out now. And guys, it is well worth the read, so make sure you pick it up. In other news, we just hit a hundred thousand downloads. Can you believe it? This is a huge milestone, and I am so glad that we got here. Thank you all so much for listening and sharing. Thank you for your reviews, comments, and follows. And thank you for sticking with us. And another huge thank you to our brilliant patrons on Patreon. Big hugs and so much gratitude to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Catherine Rowley-Williams, Icy Sedgwick, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you're already doing it just by listening. Thanks, guys. You can also rate, review, and subscribe or find us on Patreon at Dirty Sexy History. We do fun bonuses over there like extra mini episodes and holiday cards, so check it out and join us. You can also find us on Facebook, Mastodon, and Instagram, or on our website at DirtySexyHistory.com. And guys, this week I have been working on the website. We've given it a little bit of a makeover, so it's a bit more accessible than it was. It now includes a complete episode guide with a podcast player right there on the page. So if you want to you know, listen to the podcast off your desktop, or if you want to send it to somebody who doesn't understand how podcast apps work, well, we're here to help. <laughs> you know, accessibility is important to us, and we want to be able to get it to as many people as possible, and hopefully now we can. So you guys should check it out and uh, let us know what you think. So thanks again for listening. Everybody, you mean so much to me. I can't even say. See you next time.